0: two mats that's the number two m-a-t-t-s and there's a link in the show notes
2: life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
1: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it, Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombuscom slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. If you like what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. So here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription to The New European for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to The New European's print and digital package for just £2 a week. For that, for £2 a week, you get unlimited digital access. Plus, our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Coming up, The New European returns to Skegness our last visit there was a year after the referendum and it created national newspaper headlines i don't know if you remember that i certainly do but what does what was one of the most brexity places in the uk think about brexit now we will find out with journalist martin fletcher later on we'll be putting more malignant ministers bogus backbenchers and poisonous pundits into our hall of shame But before that, I'm joined by my new European colleague, Eleanor Longman-Rood, because if you're getting tired of conservatives who own spiders eating humble pie in Westminster, we can now enjoy conservatives surrounded by spiders eating kangaroo testicles in Australia for 400,000 reasons. Despite what he says, none of them are teaching the public that politicians are just regular guys. Hat Mancock has entered the jungle on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And even by the standards of Hat Mancock, it's looking like one of his worst ever decisions. Ellie, there are people who don't watch and won't watch I'm a Celebrity, but they'll still be aware of the reaction in Britain to Matt Hancock going in. His constituents are really angry. His local conservative association are really angry. Uh, He's lost the Tory whip. What I think is even more interesting is the reaction of the other celebrities he's in there with. Who is Matt Hancock uh, rubbing shoulders with now? And what has their reaction been to him entering this reality show?
2: Um, So I should probably caveat this all by saying that I am a massive I'm a celebrity fan. And if that makes me uncultured, I'm, I'm very sorry about that. Um, but no, so who's he in with? So to to copy the words of the comedian who's in there, Baba Tundi, you've got not one, but two sporting legends. You've got Jill Scott, the lioness, and obviously Mike Tindall's in there as well. Uh, there's Charlene White, the who is on Lorraine, Uh, and is also the ITV newsreader. She promised to grill her camp mates on arrival, which she proved with Matt Hancock straight away, taking him off to sort of a private corner to ask what essentially he was doing there. Um, There's obviously Boy George, who also had a very interesting reaction to his arrival. Um, There's Sean Walsh, the comedian, who arrived separately with Matt Hancock yesterday. So there's quite a, you know, just to name a few of them. So there's quite a diverse group in there. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, to start with, to start with Sean Walsh, who obviously, as for those who haven't seen the show, you have the main group who arrive sort of all together pretty much. And then you have two who intend to join, you know, a day or two later, and they normally get given a secret task to, you know, complete once they get into the main camp. And this, these two are, this year is Matt Hancock and Sean Walsh, who, um, Sean Walsh essentially just burst out laughing because he got there first, this sort of separate a camp. And then Matt followed and sort of, you know, strode towards him, hand outstretched, sort of said, like, hi, I'm Matt. And he just burst out laughing, said, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, sort of introductions weren't really necessary. Um, they then sort of had these bizarre sort of small talk conversations with the biggest elephant in the room or rather in the camp possible which led to a conversation about Ed Sheeran, because I think Sean said, oh, what music do you like? What's your favourite band? And, they, you know, Matt sort of started off the typical politician answer of being very diplomatic, saying, oh, well, there's so much out there, I like a whole range of things, and then rested on on Ed Sheeran because of the connections to Suffolk, obviously his constituency, in, I don't know, maybe an attempt to win them back. And I'm not entirely sure that saying he was a fan of Ed Sheeran was really going to yeah. do that in one in one big sweep. And then obviously, as we discussed this in our morning meeting, but the big reaction was Boy George, who really wasn't, you know, obviously there was a lot of them saying that they weren't happy, but Boy George very much so wasn't happy. Um, I think he, he, if I'm right, he said he didn't want any supper because he was sort of so dishevelled and upset by the whole thing, was umming and ahhing if he was even going to stay, took himself off to like a quiet corner of the camp to just have a think and do some sort of quiet Meditation, um, which he's done on other evenings, and you know, explained his whole connection to spiritualism and all that. And, but yeah, and then he said, which I know a lot of people will echo, is say it's very soon. You know, almost too soon to. to and we're not out of COVID yet. You know, it's changed our world essentially. And he said it's very soon. He had a very. His mother was very sick in hospital, and he wasn't able to go and see her. And obviously, we know the fallout since then is a lot of rules and policies weren't followed and. You know, Matt Hancock was the health secretary and the the figurehead of all that and deciding it. And Boy George definitely was not happy to see him suddenly in the camp on the other side of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean there was it was. I think I mean this is why we're talking about it at such length, isn't it? I did. I always planned to to talk about this. I I, I expected uh, before I watched it that we'd be talking mostly this week about. You know Gavin Williamson and, mm. and then about our, our, our piece on Skegness with Martin Fletcher, uh, which is coming up. But, but uh, those there were three rea- three separate reactions, weren't there? As you said, there was the reaction that I'd expected more people to 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 take, which was which was uh Sean Walsh's reaction, which was wow, this is amazing that you know it's how how bizarre to see you here. Um, but in fact. You know, most of the camp said, why on earth is he here? What about his constituents? Uh, Chris Moyles, the the radio guy, said that. Um, Mike Tyndall sort of said everything that comes out of his mouth is is bullshit or something like that. Uh, Charlene White was clearly appalled by him. And then we had the really visceral reaction from Boy George, which was to do with his mum, wasn't it? He thought his mum was, he was going to lose his mum during COVID, although he didn't lose his mum, I think um it's really interesting I mean for for people who don't are less familiar with with the the show than than you are what is it what has he got why is it so successful I'm a celebrity and what has he got himself into
2: well so I think we're on series 22 now I believe it's been going for yeah it's been going for quite a while and I you know as I mentioned I'm a huge fan of it I think it's the sort of big brother-esque Format of in terms of a reality TV show, but obviously you know it's celebrities, hence the title, not ordinary people. I think even people who had not seen the show could probably gauge gauge that much. And obviously, it's in out in the jungle in Australia. And um, I do, it's an interesting question as to what the appeal of the show is. I think to be honest, almost like the geography of it, the being out in Australia has actually such a unique appeal to it the whole bit of the outback and the puns and everything that Anton Deck are then able to, to play off of because when obviously because of Covid this is the first year they've been back there and they adapted it to be sort of more medievally castlely themed in Wales for the last two years I believe and as I said I'm an avid fan but me and my housemate fi- found ourselves being less appealed to it when it didn't have that whole thing of being in Australia so that's interesting I think Ant and Dec, as far as I'm concerned, are national treasures, and I think make the show. Because obviously for one year, um, Holly Willoughby was helping presenting it when uh, when could can be there, um, and sorry, excuse me. And so, yeah, it's interesting what's, you know, we talk about reality and the p- appeal in our, you know, today's society of reality TV. Um, but obviously Matt Hancock's also, it is called, and this is the thing that's been going around in my head, it is called, I'm a celebrity. And it's then interesting why we have politicians who then go on it. Mm. Um, especially if, you know, they are, we talk about ministerial positions and he's former health secretary, but he is still an MP. And yeah. So it's interesting, the whole, I don't know, celebrity appeal, celebrity-ness of politics now. And what we associate and, you know, the blurred lines between the two, because obviously he's not the first politician to go on it is because what year was it that Nadine Dorries went on? It was before her time, obviously her infamous time as Culture set. What time? Um, what year was it that she went well,
0: on? I mean, I think it was probably about ten years ago, wasn't it? It was before yeah. the referendum, certainly. Um, I, I, I mean, I have watched it on and off. I, I have not seen. I think there are three politicians who've been on before. If you don't count Boris Johnson's father, who was on it, I didn't watch that. Oh, of
2: course, yeah.
0: Um, Nadine Dorries has been on it. Edwina Currie has been on it. Lembit Opik has been on it. I mean, Nadine Doris is the only one who was a sort of a sit, doing what Hancock is doing, and was a sitting MP at the, at the time. Mm. Um, so I've missed all of them. I mean, I, I think that you know, part of it is part of it is is the sort of you know, in the fake in extremis of it all, in the the sort of the trials where you're having maggots poured over you, and there are snakes and other, you know, spiders and other unpleasant things. You know, you do. Yeah, You do seem to find out more about people than you do simply when they're in a, an episode of Celebrity Big Brother. And, and some of the people that I thought would be really good on it... I, was John Lyden on it? I don't know. I, Danny Baker, I remember being on it. I, and, I've you know, I quite like Danny Baker. I, I, I thought he came out particularly badly from it. Uh, and I think John Lydon or Malcolm McLaren was on and, and came out fairly badly from it as well. And, and then there are unexpected people who come out quite well from it but it's certainly it's it's massive business isn't it you know there are there are I I was I was staggered to see how many I mean there's there's a lot of ads in it there's a lot of ad breaks in it but there's a lot of sponsorship in it there's a lot of calls to action to ring up a a line and vote in a in a thing and it gets nine million viewers which is you know which is is more than strictly come dancing and and more than the the bake-off it's huge isn't it
2: it is huge and I think just as you started talking there, how we find more out about these celebrities than we would, you know, in the even the more candid sort of types of interviews or if it's a interviews or if it's a podcast or something like that. And I remember years ago, I can't remember what what series it was, but Larry Lamb, I all thought was excellent on it.
0: Right. Um,
2: Big, big Gavin and Stacey fan. I'm really revealing oh, yes, myself yes. as a culture expert on, the, on this episode. But it, it it's I hate to use this word, but it does often make for quite wholesome watching, especially as we sort of go, you know, it's always going into the Christmas period. So, cause then they always, they do sort of, I think towards the end, some sort of Christmassy themed challenges or things like that. And especially when you have the four at the end and they, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the challenge now, but where they all have a star and they dress up as superheroes with capes and they've got to get to the end with water and soap or pouring at them. And so it is supposed to be, you know, you have to think about camping and whatnot. They, form this sort of bond and you actually do see some quite wholesome um, chats and conversations. And like you say, you find more out about them and these sort of struggles that you don't realise are going on. And which is actually something that I've been thinking about as I watched it last night, because at first when I sat down to watch, you know, sort of Matt Hancock's first episode on it, just on one side of it, is it actually going to make this series less you know, because like you say, it's very soon from COVID and his time as health secretary. Is it going to change the the format and the tone of the show from yeah. being, you know, sort of a throwaway bit of reality TV, a bit of fun, essentially, but a bit wholesome? You know, everyone likes to have a laugh. We're going to say times are tough and all that. But actually to then throw that sort of name in the show, is it going to completely, you know, Boy George has already been arming and ahhing if he's even going to stay. And he's already been adding a lot of colour to the show. Is it going to completely and utterly almost backfire? and change the tone of this, you know, for all intents and purposes, quite a wholesome hour and a half or hour to our evenings.
0: Well, that's right. And I mean, just when you're talking there and describing what happens in a normal series and, and, and you know, I I have sort of dipped in and out of it over the years. Um, but, it's, I mean, it sounds like there's a sort of, you know, there's an almost panto-ish element to it, isn't there? Um, mm. and, and I think this is right. And when, when you were talking about our morning meeting, uh just now uh our colleague uh, Clara uh, Nickenhiller uh, I mean she 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 said something that was was really interesting she said you know as a, as a culture we we move on too fast and we you know we're encouraged or we're encouraged to move on too fast and we're encouraged to to go well you know it's we treat serious things as being funny and I think that, that issue of whether this is a terrible mistake by, I mean, we can talk in a minute about whether this is a terrible mistake by Matt Hancock, but is it a terrible mistake by I'm a celebrity? You know, Is it tarnished the brand? Has it, has it tarnished Ant and Dec uh, even by associating it all with a COVID rule breaker who is clearly... You know, not liked by the vast majority. I mean, it's not liked is a is a, a very weak way of expressing what was expressed. Um, mm. And so, I was really struck by what class said. And then there was a thing I saw Julia Rayside, who is a, a sort of writer and broadcaster who I follow on Twitter, and she said Matt Hancock breaks the format because Ant and Deck are supposed to be us. Them finding it all a bit of a hoop feels wrong. There are a lot of angry people with dead relatives who don't find this funny um and that is it's a really interesting point isn't it you know and, and Anton and Decker sort of national treasures do you they are slightly
2: tarnished by it aren't they yeah it's interesting and I hate to say it and I don't know if it's going to be a decision by and also it's not just the two of them it is it's the whole the show and there's a lot of like we were saying it's the business element and people have to be um approached weeks months I'm assuming in advance and where these decisions are made so it's you know more tarnishing the brand more so than than Ant and Deck, I think but yeah and it'll be and like you say the challenge last night and like she was saying how they're they're supposed to be us and we see them as as one of us and yes. when the two of when um, Matt and Sean were doing their their challenge to win stars for camps they could all eat in the evening and they were laughing away as you know I admit I was as well but actually like laughing with quite a sort of you know, obvious reasoning behind it, how we were suddenly all quite and quite pleased to see a politician getting his so-called comeuppance by crawling through a load of cockroaches and gunk and goo mm. and whatnot. But actually then, does that not just make it far more lighthearted than it should be it's what i believe someone else was saying in our in our morning meeting it makes our morning meeting sound exceptionally <laughs> exciting but where we were saying that it's almost like an episode of black mirror or, or the truman show like this is actually a bit weird and makes it um i don't know it gives quite the wrong meaning to it saying like though they're getting their comeuppance because we're voting for this politician to go and do these challenges. And, you know, we all joke about him, the comments about eating a kangaroo penis and everything, but actually it's a lot more serious than that. And the COVID, you know, policies and the COVID lack of rule following and rule breaking, it's a lot more serious than sort of getting his comeuppance on this reality TV show that he is also getting paid for while he's, you know, and like we say, he is a sitting MP and his constituents back home, I don't blame them, aren't aren't happy at all. and yeah, so whether it's tarnished the brand or not, I don't know. It will be very interesting to see in future years if politicians ever come back on it. I guess we just have to see what what unfolds in the next three weeks or so. Um, and how it how it all unfolds. I have a feeling it's going to be a very different show this year and the the sort of nice, sort of marshmallowy feeling chats around the campfire in the evening. Um, and not going to be as marshmallowy, fueled and feelingy.
0: No, because that, I mean that's the thing of it, isn't it? I mean, the, the, one of the series that I did watch was was one of them in the. It was in, during lockdown, so it was in Wales, and yes. you know there there was something quite nice in the in, the, in you know in, in times where people were separated from one another and all of that kind of stuff that you that you had these sort of disparate people and they all seemed to quite get on they got on with each other and they helped each other out and all of that and it and and this is for, for that reason it, it feels off doesn't it that's there's, there's somebody in there who is who is is clearly disliked and he and he's I mean he he I, we're, we're recording this on on Thursday afternoon so we don't really know what what happened on Thursday night but what what we do know happened is that the public voted for Matt Hancock to do, and having done one unpleasant trial, the public voted for him to do another unpleasant trial. And I think this—that's what happened to Nadine Dorries as well, isn't it? She was in it very briefly. She was the first celebrity voted out, but she she did—I mean, to you know, to coin a phrase, she did she she did eat a lot of ostrich anus during her her time uh, her time there. What what sort of lies in store for Matt Hancock then in, in the rest of his time in there? Do you think?
2: I think, well, obviously, I think, as you say, I think the first addiction, you, um, addiction, that's not the right word, eviction, usually happens sort of 10 days or so, so yeah. which takes us to to Wednesday, I believe, um, I believe he said, what was it with his comment to the press before going in saying he was going to engage with voters I have a feeling he's going to be engaging with different sort of voters that he wanted and he'll be doing a lot of unpleasant trials and whatnot yeah.
0: but then it you vote to get people out in an eviction or do you vote to keep people in oh, so do you I vote did... for your favorite celebrity or do you vote for the, the one that you want most to leave
2: now I've got a 50-50 chance of getting this right <laughs> off the top of my head. And I'm probably betraying my, my loyalties as a fan of this show. I believe you vote for who you want to stay in. I know they that's make this what, very that's clear. That's what i yeah. thought
0: as well, yes. And it's the person who gets the fewest votes. So under yeah. that, oh, under that, you would have thought it might it would be Matt Hancock because people won't want to vote for him. But
2: and yeah, and until that time, he'll get lots of votes to go and do all these unpleasant yeah. things. And the thing is, because obviously, because when he does those it's actually bizarre. I'm going to take a little tangent now. It is bizarre that I have this much to say about Matt Hancock and which almost is strange. It's, I feel conflicted that the whole thing is a bit ridiculous and it's actually now getting this much airtime, which if if it is this whole rebranding mission is then in some aspect, if you think, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity, it is succeeding. Um, but no, to go back to, To that, if he's got a, you know, his mission is to go and win stars, i.e. assure that the camp eats this evening and each evening. If he does well, he comes back with, you know, all the food and all the meals. And so they all get to to go to bed with, you know, satisfied tummies. How is that going to play out? Is he then going to do what he thinks and win favour with the campmates? I don't think that, you know, a sort of nice meal is going to detract from anything. And then will the tone actually even get worse if he's actually just a bit rubbish and doesn't manage to do anything and comes back and they all go hungry on rice and beans? So I don't think we're in for, at least in the conversations that he's involved with, I may be proved wrong, but I don't think we're in for a particularly pleasant um, atmosphere or at least not as sort of, as I said, like the wholesome atmosphere that we've seen in in previous episodes. And then I think like we've seen in the past, I think it will be a case where he has to go and do these trials and then he'll probably be one of the the first out and then arguably the show can as we know it begins
0: yes and and you know I think there's I think there I mean we saw in the first episode um you know the the reaction of boy George who is one of the most interesting characters I mean if not the most he he is probably the most interesting character and he's also Mm. the one who is you know you you sense that there is a lot to learn about boy george and i'd quite I'd, I'd quite like to i'd quite like to watch boy george you know open up he's quite closed isn't he and he does mm. his chanting and stuff like that and he's quite closed in um and it'd be very interesting you know i mean the 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 life that he has led um, and all the the sort of different people that he has been in that time um I, I would like to see more of him and I think it would be a real shame if he is uh if he if he if, if he feels that he can't be on a show with Matt Hancock but I also understand why he feels like he can't be on a show with Matt Hancock um is it a it, I mean is it a mistake by Hancock do you think to enter
2: that's an interesting question because like you say it's it's too. A two pronged thing. It's a decision from from you know the production, the business side of things, and from ITV. But also, I I think they've uh, bought into
0: that, haven't they? They've they've clearly considered it and gone, well, there is a risk because people won't like him. But look, I I mean, look, we're talking about it on a political podcast, exactly, and, and everybody is talking about it. You know,
2: I don't. But in terms of whether it's a mistake from from him and whether you know it's a good good decision from him, I don't. I think it's a mistake. I think um, they had Sebastian Payne, the FT's Whitehall editor, on the Today programme this morning talking about it. And he said, you know, essentially if he's in for this rebranding mission, whether he wants to come back, you know, to the forefront of politics with a bit of a bang looks a bit questionable now or whether he's off doing something else. He he said that the reason he's going on the show is to talk about this, um, the issues around dyslexia, which he said was issues very close to his heart and everything. But, you know, and it's what, pain said he sent. essentially said it's the wrong this whole thing it's the wrong person for the wrong show at the wrong time oh. which I think just sums it up which essentially in that sentence nothing has gone right about this decision you know they said we you know Matt Hancock's known as sort of a slightly awkward but slightly charming cheeky chappy he's not quite giving that impression yet he was asked by as we've said charlene Whiteley, you know why are you here why are you doing this and he said oh um there's very few examples or ways that a politician can show their human and straight away in my head i was like well no you can you know do some policies that might help people yes. and you kind of had that chance and there was very you know a lot of times where you could express your humanity and you know capacity for empathy but no maybe clearly going in the Australian jungle was actually a better way of doing it and so but again he had the chance there to say oh well I want to raise awareness for this dyslexia issue or whatever and but no went for the as she then said to um, went off and said to the other campmates you know he gave me the typical politician answer as I want people to see me I'm politicians we're just like you it was very much very much that. So yeah, I do think this is a this is a mistake from Matt Hancock, and we will just see what lies in store when he, whenever that maybe gets out of the jungle.
0: Yeah, and I thought that. I mean, I thought that was such a mistake by him. Not not not. That, I mean, I can see why he's entered it um, because it's a lot of money. It's he's getting four hundred thousand quid, um, which is only a hundred thousand quid less than than, than Boy George, uh, and he's got a book coming out um and he's done another celebrity show you know and he's clearly trying to make money where he can if if he'd have if he'd have answered that question privately by saying look you know i think my i didn't get a job from rishi and he snubbed me outside the you know central office as he was going in and Mm. I think my political career is probably over and I realise that a lot of people dislike me and I'm at a bit of a crossroads in my life. I've split up with my wife and I've got a new partner and I'm trying to work out what to do next. And, you know, I, I just thought and then I've got these causes that I'm interested in. If he'd said some of that, um, then I'm then perhaps people would have had one. They wouldn't have warned to him, but it would have at least it would have at least have been honest because those are the reasons. Uh, that he's doing it, to sell a book, to make some money, but also because he doesn't really know what to do next. Because, you know, like most people who go into politics, he thought he would end up being prime minister. Um, And uh, he's not going to be prime minister. Um, If you were Rishi Sunak watching all of this, what would you be thinking? I mean, I think you would be thinking I was right not not to give him any kind of job, because people clearly do hate him. What else do you think Rishi Sunak would be thinking?
2: I think it's a very good nutshell sort of capture of the public tone and mood um, that we are, you know, like Clara was saying, we move on too quickly. We talk mm. about forgetting about COVID. It was not, you know, we'll I say we're past COVID. We are not past it. It is something that's never going to, you know, have a quote unquote end. And people it's still very, very fresh in people's memories of not just it's a big, it is bigger than Matt Hancock. It's that whole, the way that Tory government and, you know, we're still in, albeit a different one, but Tory governance. And it's their memories of that. And now it's very much been brought back to the forefront, which actually isn't particularly what I imagine Rishi Sunak would want of, you know, those sorts of conversations coming up again, and whether they eke into, you know, press conferences and PMQs and things like that Um, to be, I don't know, I guess he was asked by, by Charlene White when she, you know, took him off to one side and they got on to, Rishi Sunak sort of inadvertently and he said oh well no it's okay we have some stability at the moment you know Rishi's only been in the job for I don't know I think he used a certain expression but yeah he said you know give Rishi a chance it might be Okay, and um, you know things are calming down and we've got to have a bit of stability. So he did, you know, he had the chance to be fair to sort of snub him back, but that was never realistically gonna gonna happen otherwise, you know everyone would have absolutely exploded, I think potentially and he'd not been none the wiser, although probably knowing what was going on. But um I think essentially it's not what Rishi would would want because it's just brought almost one a lot of trivial stuff in this whole thing of talking about, oh, should a politician be on a reality TV show when they're still a sitting MP, in my opinion? No, but also a lot of very serious stuff back to the forefront, which puts the whole issue of the Tory handling of coronavirus, you know, back in people's memories. Um, And especially, you know, looking forward to a general election, whenever that may be, it's, you know, not that people would have forgotten about it by that point, but it certainly brought it very much back up to the forefront again.
0: Yes, it really has, and, and, and you know, and as you say, it, it comes. At a, I mean, it's a, it's a it's for 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 us for everybody. I think it is uh, for everybody who, you know. I mean, I was more inconvenienced by, thankfully, by COVID than than damaged by it. But it's, I think, it's a re, a, a reminder of how many people were damaged by COVID uh, in one way or another.
2: Yeah. No. Definitely. Um...
0: Angry. Everybody else felt, isn't it? Um, and, um, and 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 yes. And I think it's. I think it's right. It's more than a Matt Hancock problem. I think it's that's the problem for for Sunak, and it comes on the way, You know, in the wake of Gavin Williamson and Suella Braverman, and he is getting monstered by Keir Starmer now, um, and that characterisation of, of, of Sunak as a weak middle manager. You know, it's too scared to do anything uh, about an office bully, sort of, you know, comparing him to David Brent with Finchie. I thought that was devastating. Really good line of attack by Starmer. And then he's got a really unpopular budget next Thursday. Um, it's, it's strange times for Sunak, isn't it?
2: It is. And again, it's what, as Matt Hancock was saying in The Jungle, which is a sentence I still can't get my head around that I'm saying. But it was supposed to be, you know, positioned as this new... I don't like to use the word era, but this new time of stability that we haven't seen for ages, you know, post Liz Trust, which actually weirdly feels, you know, we talk about moving on too quickly in politics. That feels Mm. like quite a long time ago already. Um, But moving on from that, from Johnson even before, you know, of May, but moving on from, you know, a revolving door of Tory leaders and getting back some stability and also away from the sort of scandalous elements of politics of, you know, poor behaviour awful you know assault harassment people having to resign and things like that and almost we um bogged back down in it again and that's without mentioning things you know that Suella Braverman's been up to so yeah i don't think it's you know hasn't particularly come at a good time for for rishi sunak
0: yes and i think that's absolutely right the part of the lesson of this is that uh well there may be a, a desire to uh, for matt hancock Uh, and for Rishi Sunak to say, we have moved on. Um, I'm not sure that we have moved on. Uh, So thank you for the moment to Eleanor Longman-Rood. And now our thoughts turn from the jungle to the beaches of Skegness. What do we know about Skeggy? Uh, Well, fishing village on the Lincolnshire coast that became a popular holiday destination for rich folks at the start of the 19th century. And when the railways came towards the end of that century, the rest of it got to enjoy it too. And we know the railways came because there was a famous railway poster depicting a jolly fisherman skipping along the beach with the somewhat loaded slogan, Skegness is so bracing. But just as Blackpool became the place where workers from the northwest went for a low-cost beach holiday and Brighton and Margate came to serve the same purpose for Londoners and the South East. Skegness was where you went for your week's holiday if you lived and worked, I guess mostly, in the manufacturing industries of the East Midlands. Uh, And that carried on, that happy state of affairs carried on, and it seemed like it would carry on forever. First Butlins was opened in Skegness, of course, Uh, and it seemed like it would carry on forever. Uh, until of course affordable air travel cheap package holidays to europe as well as the decline of those manufacturing industries in the east midlands and elsewhere across britain ended all of that and since that happened since those things happened in the 60s and the 70s skegness has been in decline and it's been looking for new purpose and that is one reason why in the 2016 referendum skegness is estimated to have had britain's highest vote share of in favor of leaving the eu uh, it was at 75.6 percent i mean I, I know that's right but I'm, I'm still looking at those figures and it, it boggles my mind when the new european visited skegness in 2017 uh, it was hard to find a remain voter to talk to and there was optimism in the air of everyone that we did speak to about all the benefits that brexit was going to bring and then when our article appeared the city's politicians were particularly upset about a cover uh a cover which showed the jolly fisherman with the words skegness is so brexit national newspaper headlines followed calling us out for sneering contempt uh, and councillors mps and skegness voters lined up to tell tv and radio local and national how happy they were with their vote but how happy are they all now Joining us is the journalist Martin Fletcher, who went back to Skegness for us five years on. Uh, Martin, thank you for joining us and thanks for this superb article. Now, you didn't write the original uh, piece five years ago for The New European, Um, but, I mean, you know about it, you've read it. What did it say about about Skegness and Brexit and how did the people that you interviewed remember
1: it? Well, I think the... Uh, what gave most offence was the cover, which was a cartoon of the Jolly Fisherman, which yes. is Skegness's mascot, a round, jolly, rotund fisherman prancing along the beach, and that cover had emblazoned on uh, the fisherman's jumper the words "Go Away," and he was flicking two V signs. Yes, and I think this was interpreted in Skegness as being. Implying that they were little Englanders, xenophobic. Um, you know, the vote—the the vote was um, inspired by hatred of foreigners, and uh, it caused a lot of anger. And a lot of people remembered it when I went back up. It was a challenge getting some of them to talk to me. In fact,
0: yes, I remember. I remember that. Um, and one line I remember from the original piece, which was by Anthony Claverne, um was that he had a hard time? I mean, he did find some people who who mentioned Eastern Europeans, uh, funnily enough, which 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 sort of I mean, it it kind of uh, it kind of rubs up against what they were saying at the time. Um, but he did have a, a really hard time finding people who would admit to voting Remain um, or anyone who really who who saw anyone as Brexit being anything other than a positive. But that wasn't the case this time when when you went there. No,
1: well, I found the mirror image. I expected Mm. to find lots of people who would cling to the faith, who still thought Brexit was a good idea and it was only a matter of time. Actually, I didn't find any. There were two categories, really. People who thought that they'd been sold a pup and Brexit was never a good idea and they should never have voted for it. Or there were people who still think Brexit was a good idea and they stand by their vote, but are deeply disappointed in the way that this government, these governments have uh, delivered it or failed to deliver it. But everyone agreed that it had made very little difference. It had delivered very little to Skegness. There was a widespread disillusionment
0: Yes, which is really interesting, isn't there? Even though, you know, that there, there, there are not a lot of people in your in your piece saying, yes, we got it wrong, I got it wrong, and we should rejoin tomorrow. Um, before we dig a bit di- deeper into what people talked about, what people said, I mean, I've not been to Skegness for, oh gosh, I mean, it's, it's probably 40, 40 years, I would have thought. What's, what is Skegness like as a place? I live about half an hour away from, from Great Yarmouth, which... You know, it does have its attractions. It's got a very big beach, but it's pretty much a, a classic British seaside town in, in decline. And then, you know, I'm fairly familiar with Margate and Folkestone. I've been spent a lot of time around there, where, you know, which have had some regeneration. Margate, more sort of arts led. But apart from, you know, when you go away from a few streets or away from galleries and stuff like that, you know, neither of them feel... Really regenerated. They don't feel like Brighton, which is a kind of London on the sea. Where does Skegness fit into all of that kind of dial?
1: Let me add the caveat as I went in late September when yes. most tourists are gone and it felt pretty forlorn. Right. But even taking that into account, it has the feel of having been fairly neglected, forgotten, lacking investment. For a long, long time, it felt way past its heyday as one of the, well, I suppose the the quintessential working-class English seaside resort. People, you know, they they it was the the magnet for people from Leicester and Nottingham, you know, the Sheffield, the big Midlands cities, but. There's no motorway leading to it. There's not even a dual carriageway. And bear in mind, you know, it's way across the Fens and sort of very easternmost edge of Britain. There's a solitary train that chugs across those Fenlands from Nottingham once an hour, very slow, two carriages. There's poor medical services. um, In the summer, when the population swells by about 10 times its winter population, there's inadequate phone signal mobile phone signal it feels um it feels left behind and i think that was the main reason that people in skegness voted in such huge numbers um, for brexit was a cry for help as much as anything else
0: yes and that's still a, i mean it's very it's a very persuasive thing isn't it even even now i mean i, I said while i was introing you there but, but before you you came on that when I look hmm. at the number seventy five point six percent, I think it, it, it's estimated to be the, the the vote in favor of leave. You know, I can't believe the number. It, it's I, it, when I look at it now, it still seems strange. But I completely understand the the number um, because there is that. I mean, you you got that sense, didn't you? That that um, you know, it, it was a vote for. Well, I'm I'm I am leaping into the dark. But what else? What other option have I got? We, we're kind of rotting out here.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, the status quo had failed Skegness. So there was not much downside in taking a risk. You know, why would you vote for the status quo? Why not vote for someone who is offering you change and sunlit uplands? And they did. And now I think they feel duped. A lot of them feel duped. Because nothing has changed. In fact, it's got worse because you now have pretty serious labour shortages in the tourism and hospitality industry, which is really the only industry there is in Skegness. And worse than that, the tourism and hospitality industry is now competing for labor with the big agricultural concerns, the big fruit and vegetable farms that surround Skegness.
0: Wow.
1: So they're sort of both scavenging for a diminishing pool of East European workers
0: it's really interesting isn't it that 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 in your piece that in the original piece there are some negative attitudes to to eastern european people being in in, in skegness i wouldn't say that they were you know overtly bigoted attitudes but there are certainly there's a you know there's a, a recognition that that was a factor in the vote um but then, you know, when you went, there are people there are people talking in a in a very positive way about Eastern European workers and the things that they brought, not just their their presence. What did what did people say about that?
1: Well, employers are really fed up because they relied on East European workers, and not only did they rely on them, but they thought they were really good. Mm. They worked really hard, and because there was a you know enough more than enough workers to go around. They could pick and choose, and they could pick and choose the best. So they're really upset because they can't, you know, they, you know, I met people, restaurant owners, owners of amusement parks, who were unable to open their restaurants or their bars because they simply didn't couldn't get the workers anymore. So they 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 were really upset about it. I mean the other point I'd make is if you're feeling hard done by forgotten, deprived, left behind, you do tend to look for scapegoats. Mm. And I think it was very easy for the likes of Nigel Farage and the Daily Mail to point the finger at East European workers and say, well, they're taking your jobs and they're driving wages down and they're stretching resources. You know, no wonder you can't get an appointment at your doctor or, you know, no wonder you can't get on the housing list. And undoubtedly, people fell for that i'm not saying that makes them racist or xenophobic but you know there was i I i've no doubt there was an element of that and a lot of people said there was an element of that
0: yes that's right um there's, I mean, people talked about other collateral damage from from Brexit as well, didn't they? Red tape and stuff like that. What, what, what were th- other things that people brought up apart from just the the fact that it wasn't so easy to hire Eastern European workers anymore?
1: Oh, uh, well, there were. Yeah, you know, I mean, there were sort of lots of things fairly specific to Skegness. So, you know, people who operated big fun fairs, you know, they had to send their machinery or their rides, their big dippers and health scouts are serviced every year you know they were struggling to a a lot of the equipment comes from belgium and the netherlands and they they were struggling to get their equipment serviced or to get spare parts you know in the old days they just have driven over and got it but now they can't uh skegness is full of retirees and there's an incredible number i've never seen so many mobility scooters in one place but, you know, people are saying, well, you know, we can no longer go and spend the winters in Spain because there's a limit on how long we can stay.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: there is only one Polish shop left. in. There used to be about, well, one estimate was 2,000 Poles in Skegness pre-Brexit. It's now down to 500. They have one shop servicing, and prices there have gone up 20% at least. You know, this, before the current round, round of inflation, because... You know, there are now uh, import duties on all their goods. I mean, in lots of different ways, you know, it was impacting people's lives. Yes, and- I
0: mean, it's it's, a, it's it's an incredible thing. It it has touched people and changed things in 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 so many ways. And obviously, there it's been very unexpected. Um, Matt Warman who's the local Tory MP who actually voted remain is a pristine character I think just just talk to me about uh talk to us about what what Matt Warman said to you and and how you found him
1: he said you know the vote's been taken the result is what it is let's make the most of it um it's far too early to judge whether brexit is a success or not you know it took us we've been in it 40 years you can't judge on, you know, on, on the basis of you know, a few years trying to extricate extricate ourselves on the, yeah, I suppose it sort of took a slightly Panglossian view uh, (laughs) of glass half full. You know, if there's a shortage of labour, it's going to encourage uh, British farmers and British tourism and hospitality um, owners to to, to increase productivity, to mechanise, to, you know, they can no longer rely on cheap foreign labour. And that on balance, he thinks is probably a good thing. I mean, he may be right, he may be wrong. I don't know, but that's that's that that was his view. Yes. I, I didn't get that's... the impression he I didn't get the impression he changed his mind. And now I thought, you know, if there was a vote again tomorrow, he'd vote for vote for leave. But um, you know, he was he was an MP speaking up for a constituency that had voted overwhelmingly for leave.
0: Yes. And I mean they have, you know, that he's right, they have got some money from the
1: from the 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 town i'm sorry yes i forgot that yes so yes you know they lost i mean i don't know how much skegness would have received but quite a lot from eu subsidies to deprived areas Hmm. over the years over the decades and undoubtedly it did receive money that's all gone obviously but they have received 24 million pounds from the government's towns fund which is a good thing and uh yeah, it will help, but my sense was that a it hadn't made an enormous impression on the public consciousness, and b uh, it didn't really outweigh the disadvantages for Skegness mm. of Brexit.
0: Yes, and did you go to Butlins? Butlins is a—I mean, it's the first Butlins, wasn't it? I think in the UK.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's where it all started. Actually, when I was there, it was being taken over. <laughs> or being bought back by its original owner i did try and uh i'm afraid that might i might have been a, a collateral damage from the new europeans first yeah. article I, they weren't very interested in seeing me <laughs> i did talk to the former uh what was he, managing director head of it a guy called chris barron mm. same thing he was lamenting or saying how good the East European East European workers used to be, and they provided a they were you know quite a significant percentage of Butlin's workforce, but mostly they're now they've now all gone. So he too was lamenting that consequence of Brexit.
0: Um, and then you know so many people that you spoke to had still had this idea that Brexit was was right, that it could come good, that for one reason or another. It hadn't been done right. And that is, you know, frankly, that's what I, I would say if I if, if, if I had voted for Brexit. I mean, did, did that feel did that hope feel genuine to you or did or or, or is it is it a thing to say to, to cover yourself or is it a stage of grief that you need to to pass through? Is it the bargaining stage of
1: grief? What was interesting was it wasn't just the man on the street who was disillusioned. You know, it'd be easy for people to say, oh, well, the new European went and looked for yeah. know, critics of Brexit. Of course they would. But it wasn't, it was everyone. It was the, the mayor, Tony Tai, who's a, you know, a conservative, who says now he would probably vote for remain, not leave. It was Mark Dannett. I'm trying to remember the other guy's name. Um, Danny Brooks and Mark Dannett both. UKIP members, yes. eager um Farage supporters. Danny Brooks actually hosted a rally for Farage in his in his cafe, the indulgence cafe in 2015. Great night. Um, you know, I mean they have a it's hard for them to admit that, or it would be hard for them if they thought it that Brexit was a, a bad idea. I mean, I don't think they do think that, but no. um. It's easy. Yeah. I think in a sense they, they need to blame someone other than themselves. They need to pass the buck because they were, you know, leading leave campaigners in Skegness. So it's quite convenient for them to be able to say, oh, well, it's not our fault, it's the governments. They simply haven't implemented it properly, which is what they said. Yes. And did it they say to... they were,
0: did they say that Brexit wasn't being done hard enough? Did they want more of a war with the EU and the sort of thing that Suella Braverman talks about getting out of the the you know the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights and ending the protocol. Or what, what what were their
1: suggestions of how it could be done better? It's a good question, and I'm not quite sure of the answer. I think the sense was that we had been too soft with Brussels. We hadn't negotiated hard enough. We hadn't threatened to walk away often enough. We were too willing to compromise on you know on the Northern Ireland Protocol on you know. Stopping illegal immigrants crossing the Channel. I one of the the ironies is that Skegness voted for Brexit to take back control to limit immigration and limit you know, people coming here illegally. They've just been sent 120 asylum seekers who crossed the Channel in small boats who are now occupying three rundown hotels bang in the middle of Skegness right on the seafront. So if ever there was a symbol of how Brexit hasn't delivered Skegness, I think those 120 um, would be quite a good start. Well,
0: let's leave it there. Thank you so much to Martin Fletcher to read Martin's uh, piece from Skegness and to get full access to our digital archive. Uh, Subscribe now. Uh, for a special deal for podcast listeners go to the new european.co.uk slash tne podcast thank you so much martin fletcher thank you well ellie i mean martin fletcher there what, what are your thoughts on martin fletcher's trip to Skegness?
2: uh i think it sounded like a very nice little jaunt um no i mean it's it is a, it's a sad feature, a piece that he's written for us. I mean, it's a brilliant feature, but yes, it is but it's, It is sad. Um. I think the line that stuck with me was toward towards the end or so, and he's like, for now, the jolly fisherman seems to have lost his smile, talking about how levelling up never really, you know, levelled up. And it is, it's just, I mean, saying it is quite sad sem- tends to simplify it, but it is, it's just quite sad how essentially, you know, we found that these sunlit uplands never particularly materialized. And at the end of the day, you know, all the lies and everything that got spun into the leave campaign, it affects real people as, you know, as Martin Fletcher's mentioned that he went and spoke to, that it just comes down to whether these genuine real people who have these businesses and livelihoods depend yeah. on it. He talks about this lorry driver who was trying to sell these plastic dolls on a beach and whatnot, who, you know, he said unsuccessfully, because I'm assuming not a lot were, were getting sold. Um, but it's about real people's lives, which he's captured very poignantly, I think, in in this feature. Um, but yeah, it's it's sad how they never materialise. Sort of five years on.
0: Yes, and you know, and, and as I, and as I was saying to, to to Martin just then, you know, there there are the people who are still sort of clinging to the hope that it might all be uh, all right. Um, but you know, I find it—I find it really—I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to be. And uh, what makes me angry, actually, or ang- angriest, is not the—you know—is uh, not the, the ordinary people like some of the people that, that Martin spoke to who voted for Brexit. It's—it's. It's, I'm I'm, the, I'm most angry at the people who lied to them uh, about what what would happen uh, and made them think that it was was so good and it was it, it's such a. It was such a risk free idea. But I'm also angry at people, you know, from our side who go, well, it's, you know, they're just stupid and that's, you know, you get what you vote for and it's all their own fault, you know. I, I, I think, and I think you're right. Exactly. Sad is, is the word, isn't it? Um, it's really interesting that despite a lot of the complaints for, about Brexit from Brexit voters, not many of them were saying, or none of them, I don't think, said that was a mistake. I was wrong. Let's let's rejoin. How how, do, how far away do we do you think we are from that?
2: Well, I, I think we're still a way away, to be honest. Yes. Um, I guess, I mean, there is that sort of stubborn element. You know, no one likes admitting when they're wrong, myself included. Yes. But yes. It, it does take a lot, you know, standing up and saying this, and you know, X, Y, and Z. This was all a mistake. And only a few just now are really starting to, to get into it. And it's taken a, it's a long time to get there. Um, on our letters page this week, this week it was a, what a lot of the readers were writing in about saying, you know, I think one person ended their, their letter saying, when are we going to get a leader who's just going to stand up and tell the truth about Brexit and say this has gone, you know, in black and white terms, no sort of vague think pieces that can come from it saying, well, was he hinting at this? Was he hinting at that? Putting it in black and white? In terms of rejoining, you know, putting a number on it and how many years away we are from it. Um, Matt Withers, he's normally on this podcast, but he's away. He's away this week. His interview with with Trump's man at the EU, as the headline mm. says, Gordon Sondland, who was Trump's ambassador to the EU. The, the, the subheading says, and it was what Matt was telling us that he said, he said he wanted to welcome us to the world in 2041. Where Britain then holds a rejoin referendum. So who knows? Maybe it is twenty. You know, and you know the words of Trump's man at the EU from his You know, from the horse's mouth. Maybe it is twenty forty one that we should be looking at. But I don't know. Mike, I'm just you know sort of playing around there. But twenty forty one that would be just sort of shy of twenty years if we want to put a number on it. But yeah, I don't know if we'll see much much progress before that. To be honest.
0: No, I think you're probably right. And I could just about cling on till twenty forty one. think I I might still be around hopefully it's a low bar (laughs) I've got a wooden desk um, that I'm touching there um uh and I wanted to ask you as a young person um what's your experience with the great British seaside you know I mean I'm I'm a lot older than you I'm probably 30 years older than you what's um or, or more what's you know, my connection with it was, you know, it was somewhere where you went to Blackpool. We went to because we're from the north, I'm from the northwest, obviously. and We went to Blackpool. We didn't go on holiday there, but you would go there. You might go there for a weekend or a day trip or stuff like that. Um, is, is Great British Seaside, is that something that was part of your growing up or all your holidays abroad, I guess?
2: No, we went to the seaside a fair bit. I'm also really enjoying my position as ambas- ambassador from the youth in the, yes. at, at the new European. You're the
0: only young person I know.
2: Oh no, Steve! It depends on what you classify as young, though. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> but no, I was I was Somerset, Southwest, Somerset and Dorset, born and bred and so yeah we had a lot of nice times around the seaside there was one time at you know very traumatic times a child at West Bay where we were all treated to um no I tell a lie it was in Cornwall because we were all treated to Cornish pasties and we were sat on a wall and a seagull dove down and stole my pasty so it was a very traumatic time but apart from that one time we had a very a lot of happy memories as as kids and you know teens and whatnot down at the seaside so young people go to the beaches too Steve who would have thought it who would have
0: thought it well I know I mean. you know, I mean, I mean, I, we were talking about this earlier with Martin as well. But you know, there's 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 something of the. I really like a British seaside resort. I've got to say, and I live near. Um, well I live, I live dangerously near to Great Yarmouth but I don't really go there but I do go to places like Cromer and stuff like that there's an element of faded grandeur about them um, because they were so huge at the turn of the, mm. the last century and, and, and stuff like that um, uh, and the, you know these great buildings and of course faded grandeur is, is sort of a, a British thing isn't it you know we, we are a, a nation of, of faded grandeur um, and I think that's uh, that's probably why they're so resonant, uh, these places for us. Of course, places like Brighton are just, you know, extensions of London, aren't they, I guess? Um, anyway, um, shall we move on then to the to the Hall of Shame? Let's uh, do it. Let's do it because there's a lot of shame about this week, not just in the jungle um, uh, and not just uh, not just with Gavin Williamson, but let's 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 do a bit of Gavin Williamson because I want to start like we always do with the, the world's worst columnist in the world's worst newspaper which is Anne Widdecombe in the Daily Express and this week Anne Widdecombe has conducted an independent investigation into whether or not Gavin Williamson is a bully what do you Ellie what do you think that the verdict was about from Anne Widdecombe about whether Gavin Williamson is a bully
2: Uh, don't tell me, she concluded that he was not, in fact, a bully.
0: That's correct. He isn't a bully. I mean, Rishi Sunak said there was an independent investigation going on into Gavin Williamson, and then we found out Anne Widdicombe was doing it. He said, uh, Anne Widdicombe says, uh, to use the sort of gutter language he employed towards a woman, reach the depths of coarseness. That doesn't make him a bully. Bullying can only be inflicted by the strong on the weaker a few people are as powerful as a chief whip bullying is a sustained ill treatment of someone who cannot fight back not a sudden burst of anger between equals and then this is where anne really gets into a stride now the woke karate that's you and me ellie um we the the woke karate cried bullying at the first sound of a slightly raised voice or irritation in a text the opposition is calling for williamson's resignation rishi sunak should tell them to get lost um so that's not bullying, the, the Chief Whip. But what Ann Widdecombe doesn't touch on is the other stuff, isn't it? When Gavin Williamson told a civil servant to slit his own throat and then he told them to jump out of a window, was that bullying? Because, you know, he was Defence Secretary then, and under um, Ann Widdecombe's definition, that was a clear case of bullying by the stronger on the weaker, sustained ill treatment of somebody who can't fight back because they're a civil servant scared for their job. Um, And maybe um, Miss Marple and Widdicombe can can investigate that next. Um, I want to put Nigel Farage in the Hall of Shame again as well. I don't know if you saw this, Ellie, but his take on postal voting uh, in the US midterms. uh, The US midterms didn't quite turn out like Nigel Farage had hoped. I think his guest pass to the White House uh, may not be being returned. Uh, And he tweeted, Mass postal voting before polling day changes uh, election results and i mean I, i'm i'm stunned by that that he um that, that election that voting changes election results um but there is one set of postal votes that nigel farage has never complained about ever and that is the 7.3 million postal votes that was counted in the referendum it's funny that isn't it um ellie who are you putting in the hall of the show
2: uh, first up, when you say Anne Whittakom's conducting this this inquiry, does that make her the new Sue Gray? A word she, I never thought I'd be saying.
0: Or she's the new Lord Geat. She's the ethics advisor. Ah.
2: Well, yeah. there you go. A new a new task for her. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so first up for me in the hall of in the hall of shame this week is Lord Wolfson, the chief executive of clothing and homeware retail next and the Leave yeah. Backer. Uh, he urged the government to make it easier to allow foreign workers into the UK. He said that the government was blocking much needed workers from entering the UK, even though firms were desperate for labour. In an interview with the BBC, he also said that uh, this Brexit was not the Brexit that he wanted. I think a lot of people will agree with you on that. Uh, He made this comment, ironically, in reference to immigration, um, if only there was a system in place before the referendum that would have offered freedom of movement and EU citizens to the right to live and work in the UK without requiring this sort of permission. And then maybe if this could result in us being part of a unique and economic and political union or organisation. So no, it's not really ringing any bells for me either. No. Um And then next up for me in the Hall of Shame is Suella Braverman. She got a mention last week, and at this rate, she should probably just have, like Anne, have a permanent segment in here. Um, This week, the Home Secretary told the police to take a firmer line against protesters blocking roads and damaging art, such as the Just Up Oil protests. Um, It seems like they weren't exactly taking a light-handed approach, though, when the day before... Um, the day before she made this comment in a speech, the police had also arrested LBC reporter Charlotte Lynch. She was arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to commit a public nuisance and held in a cell for five hours before being released. Um, when asked for a comment on Braverman's backing of the move, Downing Street said that it was right to trust officers on the ground decision at the time. Uh, interesting. Um, but that's not the only reason she's in there this week. How did Suella choose to get to the Manston Immigration Center last week? Helicopter, a chinook to be to be exact, naturally. Uh, now it costs uh, 3,500 per hour to fly according to the UK defense Journal. Yeah. And it was of course a necessity to travel the 19 miles between Dover where she was visiting the Western jet foil site uh, and Manston a trip that would have taken around 40 minutes by car. I imagine you go a bit quicker if you're in, you know, sort of a, a blacked out vehicle. Yeah. Um, she didn't quite, however, reach the level Pretty Patel did with having the Home Secretary personalised jacket. But for her next ride, who knows what sort of attire she may be donning. And the thing is, we make, as we have this whole episode, we make light of things like this, but there are some serious concerning policies at play here. Um... All in all, making our very own Clarny, Hale- Clarny Hanela's question of what the hell is wrong with Suella Bravman more and more valid each day. And that's a piece that you can read on our website right now.
0: Yes, you can. I was just pleased that she didn't uh, roll up in a tank, but uh, but maybe that's for future uh, visits. Um a couple more from me. I mean, uh, Gavin Williamson, I would I would love to kick him when he's down, but I, I think we all know uh, what Gavin Williamson uh, is uh, and what he has done. Um, and, you know, next, se- next season of I'm a Celebrity, I think he's pretty much there. He's even got his own spider that he can bring. Um, Dominic Raab, I wanted to put in a hall of shame for mouthing wanker at Keir Starmer. Uh, at PMQs, du- it was during a discussion about bullying, and he's mouthing wanker at the leader of the opposition. I don't know whether that's where that ranks on the Alanis Morris irony scale, I think quite high. Um, so there is one place that Dominic Raab could get away with mouthing wanker, and that would be if he was looking into a mirror. Um, but there aren't just idiots uh and uh, minor uh bullies like Dominic Raab in the conservative party there are there are lots of scumbags in the conservative party as well uh, and these are the words of Lee Anderson i don't know if you watched the uh the, the the debate on migrant issues this week when robert jenrick uh had to stand up and and um members of his own party then stood up and said a, a, appalling things about migrants while he tried to look serious and uh, a bit ashamed by them. Uh, Lee Anderson said this this week, when I hear words like sourcing houses and getting extra hotel spaces for illegal immigrants, it leaves a bitter taste in my throat. When are we going to grow a backbone and send them straight back the next day? Um, well, I mean, rejecting ideas like, you know, wouldn't it be good first to find out whether they had genuine claims to asylum um, or the, the fact that sending people back the same day would be, Break international law. um uh, But he rejected those things. And he then told Lee Anderson, then told his local paper, no ifs and buts, they must be sent back. He added, I am not a racist or a bigger. I am a normal working class bloke who has the great honour to speak up for my family, my friends, and my constituents. And believe me, I am only saying what they are saying. So, in short, what I take from that is that Lee Anderson is not a racist. Uh, or a bigot, but some of his family, friends and constituents are racists and bigots. So I'm glad to clear that up. That was the New European Podcast with Eleanor Longman-Rood and me, Steve Anglesey. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our ace producer, John Dakin. Uh, a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of a pound a week for digital, two pounds a week for print and digital. That's at the slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the new European podcast, you can subscribe. Please give us nice ratings and lovely reviews wherever your podcast provider allows uh, you can join our Facebook readers group, too. And until Elon Musk burns the whole thing now down, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at The New European. You can follow Ellie on Twitter, e Longman underscore rude, uh, and me at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Uh, Ellie, goodbye for this week. Goodbye. Uh, and from me, so long, snowflakes.